All right. Well, with that, let's turn our attention to another man who we find in Paul's circle. The man Apollos, a master of Scripture. Apollos, a master of Scripture. And as we look at this very fascinating character tonight, in fact, I would suggest that Apollos is one of the most intriguing individuals in the entire book of Acts and perhaps even in the New Testament. He's much like Melchizedek of the Old Testament in that there, there's so many questions we would have for uh, for Apollos, to know more about Apollos, or even for Luke. You know, who is this Apollos? How did he get to, to this point where we meet him in Acts chapter 18? Very, very fascinating uh, individual, and we're going to look at him tonight. And as we do that, the subtitle of our study is A Master of Scripture, because as we are going to see, he is a man who is completely sold out to the Word of God. And as we study that, that characteristic about Apollos, we're going to see that demonstrated in several characteristics. First of all, we're going to see that he was a man who was committed to learning. He was a man who was committed to learning. We're going to see the emphasis on the intellect that Luke makes as we study Apollos. Apollos was a man committed to learning. Secondly, Apollos was a man receptive to correction. His love for the truth far superseded his pride. And so because he loved the truth so much, he was receptive to correction. Number three, we're going to see that the burden of truth led to this this responsibility to speak it. And we'll see this third point as Apollos, a man who was unafraid to speak. Now today, some of the most learned men are often afraid, cowardly, to speak, especially in a politically correct environment. But in the midst of the Jewish synagogue and other places, Apollos, with all his knowledge, felt the burden to speak it. And he was unafraid, even in the most hostile of environments, to speak the truth. That's what it means to be a man dedicated to the Scriptures. And then fourth, we will see Apollos as a man who, in spite of this great intellect, was not afraid to serve. In fact, we see that he's a man who's faithful to serve. A man who's faithful to serve. We're going to look at some descriptions that the Apostle Paul makes of Apollos and see the, the servant-like attitude that marked this great man of the New Testament. The main text that we look at for forming much of our picture for Apollos is found in Luke's account in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. And I want to begin with that. You can look at, here, look at it here on the screen or open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, 24 to 28. And this is how Luke introduces us to Apollos. And it's so fascinating. It's just this little blurb on the radar for Luke. After this, you don't read of Apollos again in the book of Acts. It's just this interesting, this fascinating insight into this, into this uh, special character. Luke writes this, Now a Jew named Apollos... An Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, 
They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren, uh, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, there's some background information here in this text that allows us to paint just a general picture, first of all, of Apollos. Let's just look at his background first. We can tell from this, this text in Acts 18 that, that Apollos was a diaspora or a Hellenistic, a, a Greek-speaking Jew because he's not from the land of Israel. He's not from Judah, from the region of Judea. He is from Alexandria, and I'll talk about that more in just a minute. That was, that was in Egypt. His name is Apollos, which is probably a, a shortened form, the diminutive form of a very common name at that time, Apollonius. And as I said, he was a native of this Egyptian city of Alexandria, a very fascinating city. This city, Alexandria, was founded by Alexander the Great in 331 BC. And upon its founding, it quickly became one of the greatest economic, cultural, and learning centers in the Mediterranean region. We often don't think of this. Most of our attention when we think of the ancient Greco-Roman Empire is focused on a place like Rome or Corinth or Athens or a place like Ephesus or even Antioch in Syria or Tarsus. But this city of Alexandria in Egypt was the place for many, many decades especially leading up to the time of Christ. Alexandria exists today, and it's, it exists on the ruins of the old city. It's located on the northern coast of Egypt, on the Mediterranean. It's located at the mouth of the Nile. The lighthouse of Alexandria, built around the time of its establishment in the 3rd century BC, was estimated to have been 100 meters or 330 feet tall. And that made it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Even more impressive was the Library of Alexandria, also built in the 3rd century BC. And it was the most famous library of all of classical antiquity there in Alexandria in Egypt. It held around 70,000 papyrus scrolls. Didn't have books in those days like we think of it today. They would be scrolls put on shelves. And this massive library earned Alexandria the reputation of being the capital of knowledge and learning. Scholars from all over the world would come to Alexandria to read and to study. Alexandria was also the place where the Old Testament was translated into the Greek, also 3rd century BC, by by a, a group of, of translators, and that translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek was known as the Septuagint. And there's, a, there's this, uh, uh, this, this tale about how that happened. The tradition, the Jewish tradition is that uh, there were 70 or 72 uh, translators who were appointed to translate the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, 
they all separated and went on their way and, and, and then worked on the translation. And when they all returned, they were found, each one, each individual of the 70 or 72 translators, to have translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek the exact same way. That's kind of the, 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 the tradition that was uh, circulated at the time as the power of the Septuagint, the power uh, of this Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, Alexandria was also the, the headquarters or the, the, the place of, of Philo, this great Jewish philosopher who is really a contemporary of, of Jesus, a contemporary of Paul, a contemporary of Apollos. Undoubtedly, Apollos, uh, coming from this city, growing up in this city, would have heard of this great Jewish philosopher, Philo, who sought to take the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, all the Jewish traditions and Greek philosophy and try and syncretize it, try and synthesize it into one body of knowledge. That was this effort of this, this Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. And he, in order to make the Old Testament more palatable and more acceptable to the Greek philosophers of his day, he, he took the, 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 uh, uh, he took the allegorical, uh, the, the allegorical interpretation of of Plato, and he applied it to the scriptures so he could make the Old Testament scriptures appear more favorable to Greek philosophers. That's Alexandria. That's the context uh, into which Apollos was born. And as we're going to see, there is a consistency to some degree that we will see between the birthplace of Apollos and what we see described for us in Acts chapter 18. Now let's look at that. Let's look at these four characteristics of Apollos. First of all, his commitment to learning. His commitment to learning. Let's go back to Acts chapter 18, specifically verses 24 and 25. We read that there was this Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. We read that he was an eloquent man. He was an eloquent man. Literally, he was a man of letters. He was a cultured man. And that term eloquent in the original language could either mean that he was learned, educated, or eloquent, speaking more to his, his ability to communicate. It probably is more of the latter, probably more of his ability to communicate. He was a man who was effective in communication. But not only that, we also read in, in verse 24 that this Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. This term mighty is based off the Greek word that we get the, the idea of dunamis or dynamite from. He was powerful. He was capable. He was dynamic. And the sphere in which he was dynamic was not in the philosophies of his day. Luke doesn't describe him as being mighty in philosophy or in the wisdom of man. Although in Alexandria, that was certainly the priority. Rather, Luke describes him in what could be some of the most beautiful of terms. He was mighty. He was dynamic in the scriptures. Moreover, as we keep looking at this, these verses, verses 24 and, 24 and 25, we read that he was also instructed in the way of the Lord. Now, this verb that's used here for instructed is the same verb from which we get the word to catechize. Now, of course, our understanding of catechism is a little bit different than in those days, but catechism was, was essentially this, uh, a very intense 
uh, approach to learning, whereby memory would be employed to, to communicate and to understand and to remember important principles. So he was catechized. And specifically, he was catechized in the way of the Lord. Now, I'll return to this a little bit later, but that term, way of the Lord, especially in the book of Acts, is, is a term that refers to salvation. In fact, the church itself in the book of Acts was called the way, the way of salvation. And so we get from this that Luke is essentially saying that, that Apollos was instructed in salvation. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. Moreover, we read in verse 25 that he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. And this word accurately has to do with conformity, strict conformity to the standard or to the norm. It tells us something about Apollos' mind, that he was attentive to detail. Generalities weren't enough. Assumptions and presuppositions, that wasn't enough. He had a commitment to know the exact truth. That's who Apollos was. And notice that it says here specifically the exact truth or the, the accurate things concerning Jesus. It doesn't even just say concerning the Christ, but concerning Jesus, the historical person of Jesus. So we can, we can pull from this the, the enough of, a, of an understanding of Apollos to know that he had the Old Testament in his hands and he knew the way of salvation. He knew the prophecies concerning the Christ, the Messiah, and he knew that the historical person of Jesus was the fulfillment of those prophecies. I'll return to that in just a moment, but let's get this at this point. Paulus was a man of substance and passion. And he dispels the idea that to be spiritual means to be anti-intellectual. Now, that's common in our day. We think if you're going to be really spiritual, you turn off the brain and you open the emotions. And you just go into a Christian bookstore today and it's all about that. It's all about the emotions. It's all about feelings. It's all about you know, spiritual development or formation, which most often refers to these existential experiences. But the way that Luke describes Apollos in these very respectful terms shows us that to be spiritual means to be intellectual, to use the mind, to be mighty in the scriptures. I like what J. Gresham Machen says in a booklet called What is Faith? He says, contrary, and, and stop there, he, he said this a century ago, but this is what he said, contrary to what seems to be quite generally supposed, Thinking cannot be avoided by the Christian man. Our religion is really founded upon words of soberness and truth. It suffers now not from an excess of thinking, but from a woeful deficiency of it. And Apollos takes us back to where we ought to be. You know, when you look at the statistics of booksellers today and book Christian book publishers, they aim to a female market. And that is a sad testimony to the state of Christian masculinity today. Christian masculinity more often than not is 
associated with, with guns, and nothing wrong with that, but guns and hunting, but not reading doctrine. My exhortation to you, based on this first characteristic of Apollos, is that we need to be different. That we, if we are to be like the kind of men that Paul surrounded himself with, we need to be committed to learning, to the employment of our minds, to the recognition that our religion, our faith, is really founded upon words of soberness and truth. Secondly, he was receptive to counsel, to, to correction. He was receptive. And we have to establish a little bit of the context here. And let me read some of the, these verses again from chapter 18 of Acts. Verse 24 says, A Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And so you can see where Ephesus is in relation to Alexandria. We don't know whether he just sailed right across the sea or whether some other path brought him to Ephesus. We don't know. Maybe he had even been in, in Rome before that, but had to leave like uh, Aquila and Priscilla. We, we just don't know. But he came to speak out boldly in the synagogue. So he arrives in Ephesus and goes to the, the synagogue there in Ephesus. There's no church yet in Ephesus. And he goes there to begin preaching Jesus as the Christ. He goes there to begin engaging in evangelism. And Paul, we read this from the verses before verse 24 of Acts 18. Paul had left Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. We talked about that last week. After he concluded his ministry in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla hosted him there. He sails across the Aegean Sea. And he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus and says, I'm going to come back, but I first have to go back to Syria, to, to Antioch, to visit the sending church. So in the meantime, as Paul is away, Aquila arrives and begins preaching. But there's no church, and so he goes to the synagogue and begins preaching there, just as Paul would have done. And it's there that Aquila or Apollos steps into the influence of Paul. Not because Paul is there, but because Paul has left Two people there to prepare for his return. And when he steps into the synagogue and begins preaching, Apollos steps into the influence of these two friends of Paul, these dear friends, Aquila and Priscilla. They hear his preaching, and verse 26 says this, that when they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now let's look at that for just a moment, because it's important to see how this it relates to his receptivity to correction. Luke states that prior to this meeting, Apollos already was mighty in the scriptures. He already had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he already was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. But Luke also indicates that something was needed yet for Apollos. And he says that the problem was not error per se on Apollos' part, was not poor judgment, it was not bad interpretation of the Old Testament, it was a lack of information that was not contained in the Old Testament. You see, we read that Apollos, we read that Apollos had been acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, it's important to note that John's baptism was different than Jesus' baptism. John's baptism was consistent with the Old Testament. It was not consistent with the New Testament. 
John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was not a baptism into the name of Jesus. And we don't have time to go into this, but if you want to learn, read more about this, read what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, near the end of his sermon. And you'll read Peter at the end of his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, explain the new reality of the church in calling upon the Jews to believe in Jesus and to be baptized into the name of Jesus. That was a piece of information that Apollos did not have. You see, Apollos understood correctly the prophecies concerning the Christ. He had been somehow exposed to the teachings of John the Baptist. And we know from John chapter 1 that it was John the Baptist who said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist understood who Jesus, the historical person, was. And that it was Jesus, this historical person, who was going to provide atonement for sin. And Apollos understood that and was able to connect the prophecies of the Old Testament to this person of Jesus. But Apollos had not heard of all the revelation which had been given concerning the subsequent work of Christ, particularly concerning this new program called the church, which began on the day of Pentecost. And Paul calls the doctrine of the church, he calls it the mystery of Christ, Ephesians 3, verses 4 to 5. The mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to whom? To his holy apostles and to the prophets, the New Testament prophets in the Spirit. You see, Apollos' message was just one of incompletion, not one of error. He had not, because of the progressive nature of revelation, received everything he needed. But what he did know, he communicated accurately. And so when Aquila and Priscilla hear his preaching, realize he's got it right, but it's not the complete story. And Aquila and Priscilla, who had been 18 months with Paul prior to this, says they took him aside. And literally, the verb there is is, is special in that it suggests they took him aside to themselves. They did not deride Apollos in public. They did not just correct him at a moment of convenience. They actually took the effort to pull him aside and say, we want to tell you something. And perhaps this verb even suggests the idea of offering him hospitality, taking them into themselves. They use their hospitality to minister tactfully. And then secondly, it says that they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They explained to him They exposited to him, they elaborated to him more accurately. There's a comparative adverb that's used there. He already was teaching accurately the things of the Old Testament, but now they're going to even help him to be more accurate. That was Priscilla and Aquila. And what is amazing about this situation is that Apollos received it. Now just think of the contrast between these individuals. You have, on the one hand, Apollos from the greatest intellectual center in the known world at the time. And then you have Aquila and his wife Priscilla from that way out there region of Pontus. I mean, who wants to go to Pontus? You have Apollos who's educated, intellectual, and eloquent. And you have 
Aquila and Priscilla who spend their time sewing leather together. They're tradesmen, business people. They're leather workers by trade. And Apollos is a teacher. He's an apologist. But he accepted correction. You see, this is a mark of a master of Scripture. Because if you're a master of Scripture, you care about the truth more than your own pride. And you are willing to be corrected if it leads you to a better knowledge of that truth. And that's what we see with Apollos. And the fruit is so wonderfully demonstrated in the following verses of Acts 18, where in verses 27 and 28, we read that he goes over the Aegean Sea to Corinth, where there already was a church. Paul had established the church there. He goes there and he, it says that he helped, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace as he becomes this great apologist for Jesus Christ in that context. I want you to note this. Lots of lessons we could draw from this. But notice this. As much as we need to be committed to learning, some of life's most valuable lessons will not be taught by the most educated. Some of life's most valuable lessons will not be taught by those with PhD degrees who know the Greek and Hebrew. Sometimes it'll be taught to us by very simple people, uneducated, but who love the Lord and who know his word. And we need to be receptive to that. Moreover, it's an encouragement to all of you who do not have PhD degrees, who do not know Greek or Hebrew, but you do love the Lord and you pour over his word. You can be used like Aquila and Priscilla in the life of some great scholar who someday will go on to be a great apologist for the cause of Christ. You don't need to shrink back from speaking. You can introduce that correction. You can introduce that that help to someone which the Lord will use to form them into a great great instrument in the, the Lord's hands. I like what one scholar says, when we think of Apollos, this great learned scholar, we should never forget the simple man and his wife who led this brilliant scholar and preacher to a full faith. When you think of Apollos, you can't separate him from Aquila and Priscilla. Number three, moving on quickly here. He was unafraid to speak. He was unafraid to speak. First of all, in Ephesus, we read that when he gets there, even, even before he, he, he knows what he doesn't know, he just knows what he knows, and he's faithful to that. He's not afraid to speak. He's fervent in spirit, Luke says. He's fervent in spirit, and that word fervent comes from a a verb which means to boil up and to burn. And and so we we see that with uh, with Apollos. He was like Jeremiah of old who had fire in his bones. He, He knew the truth and what he did know, he had to communicate. And we read that he went into the synagogue and he spoke out boldly. And that word there for boldly means to speak out freely, openly, fearlessly, and it is used in numerous instances in the book of Acts to describe Paul's preaching. That was Apollos. Secondly, when he goes over to Corinth, after his correction by Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, and then he goes to Corinth to minister there, we read the same thing. That when he arrives there, he greatly helped. This is Acts 18, verses 27, 28. He greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating 
by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So Apollos goes over there to Corinth and he begins to encourage those believers by virtue of the fact that he doesn't remain silent. And this word that's used here for the powerful refutation of the Jews is very strong terminology and it refers to this this overwhelming, vigorous defense. That was... That was Apollos. You see, if we truly know something, that knowledge will not be allowed to grow stagnant. If we truly know the truth, and and all the implications of it, as much as we, we contemplate, we will not remain silent. We will recognize the burden that we have to share this truth. We will recognize that We must steward this truth to the benefit, to the salvation of others. And that is Apollos. He could not remain silent. The truth boiled up within him. He had to communicate it because anybody who truly understands the truth cannot remain silent. And that was Apollos. Reminds me of 2 Peter 2 verse 9 where Peter tells the church that he takes this Old Testament terminology and he says, you are a chosen race, 2 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Number four, Apollos was faithful to serve. Apollos was faithful to serve. Now, we've got to set up some context here. We don't have a lot of time to do this, but let me try to do this quickly. It was this bold, passionate, eloquent teaching which led some of those Corinthians who had been greatly helped by by Apollos to be swept up in admiration. This was no fault of Apollos's. This was due to the fleshliness of some Christians who get enamored by skill, who get enamored by eloquence, who get enamored by by the the intellect. And that's what was happening in Corinth. Apollos was there. He was helping them greatly. And then some of them started to say, wait a minute, he preaches better than Paul. He communicates more powerfully than Paul. And so three years later, when Paul writes to the Corinthians... From Ephesus, he notes this partisan spirit. He says this, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are some quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, and then some saying, well, I am really spiritual, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? One commentator says this, carried away by the eloquence of this powerful preacher, these philosophy-loving Christians began to discuss the different servants, compare their merits, and openly praise the merits of Apollos to the disparagement of others. Comparing the servants, they forgot the master. That's what had happened, and it was no fault of Apollos, as we're going to see. Paul continues to write in 1 Corinthians. The first four chapters of his letter to the Corinthians deals with this partisan spirit 
And Apollos is mentioned numerous times, but as we're going to see in just a moment, never does Paul lay the blame at the foot of Apollos. This is all due to the carnal, the carnal behavior of these Corinthian church members. So, for example, notice this in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9, Paul says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? He, he, he connects himself to Apollos. Now, notice the description. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Diakonos. Servants. Through whom you have believed. And then he says a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, he says, let a man regard us, and he's referring again to himself and to Apollos, in this manner as servants of Christ. Now, this word for servants is a little bit different in the original. It has the idea of subordinates, assistants, helpers. Consider us, Paul says, as servants of Christ, subordinates. That's how Paul viewed Apollos. And in fact, when we get to the end of the letter, as Paul closes his letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12, he includes this interesting statement in verse 12. He says, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, what we get from this is Apollos had been there in Corinth helping those believers. But at some point, he left Corinth to go back to Ephesus when Paul was there in Ephesus planting the church. The partisan spirit grew and intensified there in Corinth, requiring Paul to write the letter. But before he even writes the letter, Paul says to Apollos, Hey, Apollos, maybe you can go back and help us deal with this problem. It's so severe. Now, scholars have wondered, why would Paul send Apollos back? Obviously, he doesn't see Apollos as guilty in the matter. He sees Apollos as a potential solution. But Many scholars say that it is probably a reference here to the fact that Apollos did not desire to go back because of how those carnal church members were venerating him and revering him, he wanted nothing to do with it. And that suggests that Apollos was indeed a servant. He was a servant. He did not glory in popularity. By the way, this reference in 1 Corinthians 16 tells us that, yes, Apollos does cross Paul's path. Paul doesn't just refer to him from afar. They actually spent time together, and Apollos becomes an important part of Paul's ministry. In fact, there's one final reference to Apollos. Eight years later, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in AD 55, from Ephesus to Corinth, AD 55. And then Apollos seems to drop off the scene. But then in Titus... In Paul's letter to Titus, which he wrote around AD 63-64, he makes this reference at the end of Titus. He says, diligently, he says to Titus, he writes to him and says, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Why does he say this? Most likely, this is because Zenos the lawyer and Apollos were the letter carriers for Paul. They actually took the letter to Titus that Paul wrote, probably somewhere in Achaia or Macedonia. They took that, 
boarded a ship, and went on to Crete and hand-delivered the letter to Titus and spent time with him. And that shows us once again that Apollos was a faithful servant. So here we have it. A man who was eloquent, educated, mighty in the scriptures, passionate, bold, teachable, subordinate, a servant, a steward, a brother. This was Apollos. And let me say this, that all of us here in this room, as followers of Jesus Christ, who have had our minds renewed, should be pursuing these qualities in our own way to the, to the degree that we can in the circumstances that we are in, we too must seek to use our tongues correctly in eloquence. We must educate ourselves in the truth uh, that God has revealed. We must become mighty in the scriptures. And that knowledge of, of God and his way of salvation must lead to this passionate boiling up of the truth to communicate. We must be bold and speak this truth in whatever context that we are in, regardless of the threats. We must be teachable. We must be subordinate and understand what humility is all about. We must be servants, stewards, and we must be brothers. One writer said this, summarizing his life. A cultured Alexandrian Jew with a mastery of the scriptures and an accurate knowledge of the story of Jesus, who for a brief space traverses the Pauline circles and endears himself to its members and their leaders. He makes a powerful impression on fellow Jews and fellow Christians in Ephesus and Corinth and then vanishes from our sight. May we have a similar biography someday in some kind of analogous way to how we live our lives here as Christian men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study this example, very intriguing example that you determined to have in your word for our benefit, for our instruction, we pray that you would take these qualities and in each one here, increase them in our lives our eloquence, our education, our mightiness and dynamism in the scriptures, our passion to communicate truth, our boldness in the face of threats, our teachableness, our humble subordination, our servant-like attitudes, our recognition of stewardship, and our brotherly love for one another. May you increase those things in our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.